Welcome to the Let Me Be Free podcast. My name is Jackie. And my name is Alwyn. We're two sisters from Ireland living in Australia, navigating our healing journeys together. And this is our podcast, Let Me Be Free. We'll be interviewing everyone who's helped us to get us where we are today, whether that's therapists, loved ones, people from our Facebook group, Let Me Be Free, The Wounded Inner Child, or people who we've never met, but have had huge impacts on our lives. Follow along with us on this journey as we try to dissect what has really worked for us in the hopes that you too might be freed. Before we jump into today's episode, just a friendly reminder, guys, to have a look in the timestamps in the description to make sure that all the topics that we discuss today are comfortable for you to listen to. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let Me Be Free. Um, today, I'm going to interview a craniosacral therapist. Um, this was my own craniosacral therapist that I um, used or worked with in my own healing journey. And I really wanted to give everyone an opportunity to get more information and a bit of a background history into what craniosacral therapy is, how I experienced craniosacral therapy, how Annie um, felt that I showed up in that first um, session with her and how I left her, you know, months later. Um, so welcome, Annie. I'm so glad that you've um, come here to chat to us today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So I want to ask you to start off three fears and one happy memory. Mm. What would you like to share with us? Well, I think when it comes to fears, I kind of have an overall existential fear of climate change in terms of how it affects humans and animals um, and life as we know it. Um, and then on an individual, more individual level, um, I, I think my fears are probably around health and, you know, what, what would happen if someone close to me had a severe accident or, you know, that type of thing, or if I lost mm. my myself or was in a lot of pain. I think that was, those are kind of the types of fears that I have. Um, and happy memories, that was it. that's an interesting one. I think I, the classic one to say would be, you know, when my kids were born, but I think that's relief actually when they pop out. Um, <laughs> um, I think probably um, my happiest memories are when I feel really proud of something that um that I've achieved or accomplished, but not really just accomplished, like, you know, I can put that on my CV kind of thing, but more just like when I did something that I surprised myself by doing. And give us an example of one of those. What's What comes to your mind? Because you've achieved a lot, to be truly honest. You're very much a high achiever if I've ever seen one. So well, probably, what? Probably, um, it's a bit of a strange one, but when I was 17, I lived in France for a year on exchange. And I, one day, um, I'd been there for quite a while, but my the family I was living with dropped to me on the outskirts of Paris. And I had to go and do, you know, I could do whatever I wanted for the day and then make my way to someone else's house outside of Paris. And I remember just negotiating the, um, you know, the the tube or the the underground there and going to all to a couple of um, uh, museums and art galleries and then getting to someone else's house at the end of the day. And I went, oh, wow, I did that in a foreign country on my own. And I was just really proud of myself. And I still think about that. 
I love that. That's a great example. And I think you're right. You know, when I did this with Jackie, a happy memory, like you, it was not these um, typical happy memories. It was a very simplistic happy memory for me, you know, very, it was literally just a hike, a random hike, but it was the peace I felt and that mm -hmm. sense of safety and freedom. That was happiness. You know, it's amazing. So, um, yeah, so to start off, um, you know, I'd love to talk about initially, I guess, how I came across Cranio. It was a very much um, an intuitively led journey. And by, by that, I mean, you know, I always look at following the breadcrumbs. Like I'll say, okay, I'm in this space and I, you know, I, I have a vision of who I want to be. I have a vision of where I want to get to and what's going to get me there. Like, you know, and I kind of say to some other higher power or someone up there or even a higher power within myself, you know, what do I need to do next? And I kind of just wait. And that's when it was really random. I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, I'm doing craniosacral therapy. It's really good. And I was like, what's craniosacral therapy? They're like, oh, it's an energy type of healing. I was like, okay, great. A few days later, I had seen someone on a post that were like, oh, you know, for my healing, I use craniosacral therapy. Now, before this, I had not heard about craniosacral therapy at all. And so in the space of probably a week and a half, I had four references to craniosacral therapy out of the blue. And for me, I knew then I was like, OK, you want me to go see a craniosacral therapist? Amazing. And I'm also very much you know, it has to be the right person for me. And for me, I looked at craniosacral therapy and therapists and I just didn't feel like, I don't know, just didn't feel right. And so months later when I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this person a go. They had been recommended by another person. And that was, um, Saba. Uh, your, yeah, Saba. Yeah, and, Saba. and I contacted her and she had recommended you. And I'm so glad, Annie, because I don't think anyone could have, gotten me to where you got me to I just I didn't resonate even just with the craniosacral therapy you were just a soothing tonic from my whole entire soul and you were just so beautiful and your energy the whole experience with you it was a whole body experience it wasn't just your experience as a craniosacral therapist but just everything else that you offered um um but yeah, I remember that first time when I went to craniosacral therapy and I didn't really know what to expect. But um, yeah, it was it was quite a strange experience. I just kind of felt like as I lay on the table and you were doing the, the energy healing, I guess it was the first time I actually had spatial awareness of my body, um, how disassociated I was, because actually I felt like I was floating. It was as if I was floating above my body I wasn't actually in my body and even though I know now that that was the truth for quite a long time that was the first time that I actually felt it oh. um, and it was fascinating I just remember lying there going oh my god what the heck is happening here but it was as if a ghost that's the best way I could describe it it was as if there was a ghost of my own energy the same as me same as me but a kind of like a, a see-through me kind of floating mm. above me mm. that is a very fascinating description of um dissociation and the fact that you just became aware of it I hadn't actually realized that it was the first time yeah you... oh wow I, I think in trauma 
clients, that's a really common experience and it's incredibly scary sometimes to try and embody or to, to bring yourself into your, bring that sort of outside part of yourself internally. Um, yeah. and, and so, and that's probably the part of cranio that I really enjoy is that you can, our aim is not to force ever, it's to give space and on, it's always on your terms. So that's, mm. yeah, that's, oh, that's really fascinating though, of your memory of that. Mm. And I think that's it. Like, you know, when I felt that, it was really empowering for me because I felt very safe. You know, you know how important safety is for trauma, people with trauma. I felt safe enough in that moment that I was okay with that disassociation. I was okay with being aware of it because I felt like you had created such a safe container for me mm -hmm. to uh, experience that. Um, and yeah, for me to, to feel that. And so I'd love to go into a little bit of your understanding. What is craniosacral therapy? Um, yeah, what is it all about? Yeah. We'll, we'll shift in and out, I think, between my journey and also my kids have gone to see you. But let's give people a bit of an understanding from your viewpoint. Um, yeah. Even going to your, you were very scientific, which I love because a lot of people are like, oh, it's airy-fairy, you know, mm -hmm. it's not for me. Yeah, maybe I'll just put in a little bit of kind of my history is, um, so I'm actually a, a veterinary surgeon and I've been doing that for about 24 years. And um, and then basically I started, you know, I was realising that a lot of medicine that we practice is really Band-Aids um, on animals as well as humans. You know, some of, some of those Band-Aids are really good. If it's a bleeding organ, you take it out and, and you fix that. But some things we're just not so good at, at actually fixing. Um, and so I started to kind of look into a little bit beyond just the classic medicine things, which is funny because when I was at university, I was so much like down the very science if it hasn't got an explanation it doesn't exist kind of thing and then um, I studied um, acupuncture after trying it for an injury and it made such a huge difference so I went I'll do acupuncture so I studied acupuncture um, and then while I was studying acupuncture one of the other vets because it was a veterinary acupuncture course said oh can I try this um, weird thing on you because I just went to a course and I want to remember how to do it she was planning to use craniosacral therapy for horses and then she kind of held my feet and it was the weirdest sensation ever I suddenly started feeling like I was back flipping and I remember I had to hold on to the chair and just go what and then just as I was about I got my my faculties back and was able to speak um just as I spoke she said oh it started again she goes I stopped your, your CSF flow your craniosacral your craniosacral fluid flow and I um and I've now um and, and then it's restarted and I was like well that is weird that she knew when it had started so I and then I forgot the name of this thing and but I remember thinking that was so weird we moved to London I couldn't get in touch with her even though I tried and then um suddenly I was just on on the computer one day and it said have you tried craniosacral therapy and I went oh, that's what it was called so then I looked up I just looked up the um the UK version of the PACT, which is like our, our organisation in, in Australia, and um, found someone near me and started seeing her. Her name's Katie Sedgwick in London. And, um, and she was um, great. And then I just started getting more and more intrigued. And I'd say, if you wanted to know more about this, what book would you read? And she started giving me all these book recommendations. 
but essentially, and then I ended up deciding to study it when we moved back to Australia um, with body intelligence. But I think in a nutshell, how I think of craniosacral therapy now is it is a way, and, and I think there's other ways, like I think other therapies do this as well, but it's the way that I've come across, um, of creating a safety so what you mentioned was really important. Um, and when, you're, when your nervous system feels safe, then it can move from that flight, fright response and flee. So that's called your sympathetic system. It can move into the parasympathetic system, which is rest, digest, you know, the calming part of our nervous system. And when you get into the parasympathetic system, that's when your body is able to heal because when you're in fight and flight, your body doesn't care about healing, you know, your sore toe. It just cares about you running away from the, the saber-toothed lion or tiger that's chasing you. Yeah. And so I think at its very core, it is a sense of safety, a creating safety. And then there's various ways that we do that um, and that we learn to do that. But um, that's my kind of easy description now um and the it, the therapy itself has been around for over 100 years but it's had a lot of changes it started as an offshoot of osteopathy and there's still people who are cranial osteo osteopaths and they have studied it and then um so they become an osteopath then they do a craniosacral course with um at the end of that whereas then probably about i think it was about 30 years ago there started to be kind of an offshoot where some people said maybe you don't have to study osteopathy and you can just become a craniosacral therapist and then even within that it's quite a fragmented kind of therapy because there's what we call biomechanical um, craniosacral therapy which is more about this bone is out of alignment I will kind of help it gently push back into place a bit more of the kind of osteopathic or chiropractic underlyings or the style that I practice is called biodynamic, which is I don't ever push or pull anything um, on, on anyone's body. I just allow the body to come to where it's easiest to be at that point in time. Mm. And so when you're talking about you allow, what mm. are you exactly doing? So you're not putting your hands on to per a person. You never, well, you do. Sometimes you will put your hands on me or always or do you, yeah. you know what is it is it all energy work what is energy you know we yes. we're the people that think energy is woo woo or that you know it's not something I can tangibly experience or feel you know yeah. can we just explain that a little bit for yeah. for the listeners so what happens when you train to be a biodynamic craniosacral therapist is you you learn to um the teaching is around learning to become a neutral space um, and so and a calm space so that your nervous system is able to um, to relax and to to kind of hold create a hold um, so that an anchor for someone and then then you come into contact with that person's um, nervous system and craniosacral therapy is generally done with hands-on. There are some people who practice at um, distance craniosacral therapy. Um, I, I don't do that, but some people, but some craniosacral therapists I know do that. Um, and what 
what we're then doing is kind of connecting the the two nervous systems but also not not enmeshing them it's important to not enmesh so that you you're dragging someone with you it's to just provide that kind of touch point for them so that they always know that there's safety and a really good way I think to see this is um you know with little children like little toddlers they will when they're in a new environment they will look to their carer to check it's okay and that's part of I think how craniosacral therapy works but on a less visual kind of um way in, in a less visual way it's happening on a kind of energetic level yeah I started with you and I, I had done different types of energy healings I'd really sampled a lot of things but I really stuck with craniosacral therapy for quite it's been the longest therapy I've done because I really did feel um, a difference. And I think everyone's very unique. Everyone's very different from what works for them. But in that initial session, I felt that my my energy system or my spirit, um, I was disassociated, which, yeah, I was kind of separate outside of my body. Um, and for anyone that doesn't understand what that means is, you know, when I was a child and I was experiencing very traumatic events, it was very difficult for me to be within my body experiencing all the levels of trauma. My energetic system was not capable of processing all of the pain and the trauma and the suffering that I was experiencing. And so like, um, like Annie's saying about that fragmentation of even craniosacral therapy, I had that fragmentation of um, a part of nearly my energetic system. It just kind of the best way that I describe it is it's as if, you know, I compartmentalized um, a part of me that's outside of myself. So it didn't have to experience the pain and the suffering. So it was kind of like the way I see it. And it's this is just my perspective of it is it's as if there's a, a floating part of me that is kind of hanging around my body, but it's not within my energetic system because it's not safe enough to come and integrate into my body and I feel that the work that I did with you Annie was very much I feel like it was the right timing because I know we've talked about this a lot before where you've had people that have come to you and you've kind of you know I'd love if you could touch on that where you've had people come to you and you were kind of saying I don't know if this is really the right time for you to continue with this therapy because you know, you have to be ready for it. And I was ready for that integration. I was ready for you to hold that container, that safe space for me so that I could bring these, you know, fragmented, painful, wounded aspects of self into my body. Um, and I really feel like you just facilitated that so beautifully in, in so many ways. Mm, look, and, and you are right in that, and uh, in terms of that, it does come at the right time for people. And I really liked when you said you heard about craniosacral therapy four times in a, like a week, because I have what I call the rule of three. People don't actually, like, I have a few clients who say, I've recommended my friend to come to you and she hasn't come yet. And I say, oh, don't worry, she'll, she'll need to hear it a few times before she comes, because it is a strange therapy that people have never heard of. And they're a bit kind of, what's this? Um, or it's not strange, when I say strange, it's it's not well known in Australia. Like in the UK, it's much, much 
more prevalent to like and almost every woman I meet from the UK will say oh yeah my child had craniosacral therapy when they weren't feeding well or my I had it after my birth when I had some issues because their their um National Health Trust nurse will actually recommend it um, whereas here it would be completely bizarre for someone in the regular medical world to recommend it although I, I sometimes now get a few referrals from doctors who I don't know um, but I would, yes, touching on what you were saying about not being integrated, that's a really important point for two things is one is that talking therapies, um, it's really hard to integrate when sometimes the things that have happened to you might have been when you were pre-verbal or when you were so in fear that your um, the area of your brain that deals with um, words just went offline. So you don't actually, not you personally, but people don't have words to describe severe trauma because it is so indescribable. And so then doing a talking therapy can sometimes just hold things in place and not actually move, move forward in integration because you're trying to put words to something that doesn't actually have words. And that's wow, yeah. probably what I love about cranio is, um, you know, you can sometimes, it, it's always on the, the person's own terms. So your body, like I think once you had children, you, that unleashed a whole lot of memories and, um, and concerns about how you would parent given, given your, your childhood yourself. And so that was really making it that your your body was saying I have to integrate this because if I don't I'm either going to go crazy or I think I'm going to you know damage my children my kids yeah yeah and that's and that it's interesting because that's a really common time when I see clients um or particularly women when they start to have this suppressed trauma from childhood, um, you know, feelings of helplessness, and then suddenly they have children, and they might have reached really great heights in their careers and they feel quite in control of that, and then suddenly they have this screaming child that they can't keep quiet and they just completely frazzled and out of control and it brings them back to that sense of helplessness, which then leads to them um, seeking help, you know, because they realise they're out of their depth. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that kids can, can, they're such helpless, you know, such innocent little beings and they can just bring us down to our knees with, with, I think that mirroring with their helplessness and their, I guess their unapologetic um, request for their needs. It's like, you know, I have needs. I want them to be met. And us as adults, we're like, you know, I've, I don't know how to meet my own needs. Never mind. Take care of your own needs. You know, this isn't something I was learned. I learned as a child. I learned to suppress my needs. And now you're unapologetically asking for all of these things that I was deeply shamed for in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, it, you know, you know, when I came to you, I was. Yeah, I'd love you to give me some insight what is your thoughts about how I who was I when I'm who was I when I started with you yeah. how did I progress you know I'd love you to give me a bit of insight into that yeah. as well it, it was really um fascinating for me because um you came 
so you, I think you, or at least when I had met you, you became, uh, you were always a very open person about what was happening, but there was just so much confusion because from my perspective, um, you, it was, and this happens with severe trauma in childhood, you had spots of memory, but they were not in any order and they were not in a, a cohesive narrative of your life. So then I think what was happening is there were so many triggers for you that when, if the kids did something, like it would bring out some self-hate, you know, which you could then mirror onto the kids because how dare they be so needy? Because if you're, when your needs weren't met and you were shamed for them, then that made you hate yourself. And then, so then when someone else is mirroring, always telling you, I, I have needs, you, that brings out almost a sense of disgust, I think at times. Yeah. And then, um, and I, what I found fascinating was, um, I, and I'm always impressed with people, like how much courage and bravery they bring to cranio um, because it is, it can be like cranio is a very soft therapy, but the things that it can bring up can be so confronting at times um, that that's, that's part of the reason why I think people need to be ready and in a life space where they can, um, like, I wouldn't necessarily always say that having two really young kids full-time at home would be a great time to, <laughs> to kind of process all your trauma. But I also think you had to, like yeah. it was, it, it, it was a, a complete imperative because otherwise I, I think you, you would have felt it was so dangerous. Yeah. Like, well, I, would, I was, I was dangerous at that point. Like, I, and I mean that in the most, you know, I don't have any regrets about that because I couldn't control my trauma responses, but I had no real autonomy or control or awareness of how to deal with my trauma. And so it was like vomiting anger, vomiting aggression, vomiting pain everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it was so mm -hmm. toxic. There was no option for me. I just had to get help. Um, even that, even though that would make me in many cases feel worse initially, um, because as you said, it does bring up those extra layers. And energetically, mm -hmm. did you find any difference like with regards my energetics um, initially? What was your perspective on that? Oh, my, my perspective was very much about dissociation. Um, like I remember in the first few sessions feeling like, wow, there is, there is so much um, dissociation. I don't even know if you're in the same room almost, yeah. you know, from my perspective. And yeah. it was so really negotiating that because um, I think dissociation gets a very bad rap because people say, oh, no, I'm dissociated. But dissociation has a very important role. You know, we, our, it's our body's way of protecting us when something it really traumatic happens. And we, you know, I, I think too often we kind of say, oh, you shouldn't be dissociated. And no, you shouldn't in the long term. You know, it, it's, a, it's living a, to not live an embodied life is a, is a, a less um, juicy life. But... I think we need to we need to be really clear that dissociation is helpful at the time 
in a lot of situations. And then it's about negotiating that that will come back over time when you learn to piece together what's happened. Um, and it also doesn't mean you have to relive everything. That's the other probably really important thing to say is um, I have some clients who, you know, really address dissociation and trauma, but they may never have told me what their trauma is. They've never put it into words. We've never actually discussed it. They might say something like that was a really big session and a really big trauma came up for me. And I'll say, oh, okay, but I, I won't press them to find out exactly any details of that because verbalising them isn't necessarily helpful to their healing. Yeah. So, and I'd say um, it was really interesting seeing how you negotiated this sense of self and also the sense of your, um, your young self. Like I think we, over the course of your sort of um, having craniosacral therapy, there was a really strong shift in terms of, you know, the, the parts of yourself that you probably had felt the most shame about and that particularly maybe ages that that was at, you come into contact with yourself in those ages. I found that a really interesting, that doesn't always happen with, um, or I, I, had, I don't see that that often, but you had this sense of, um, it was quite clear that there were some really pivotal ages where there was quite a lot of trauma in your life because those came up and then were integrated over time. Yeah, I feel like I, I was really, I'm a very visual person. Like I feel like, you know, and not everyone has that experience where um, I was on the table and I had many instances where you were doing energetic healing. And the thing I absolutely loved about working with you, Annie, was, you know, so many people say, oh, how do you know if it's working? How do you know if this is not real at a load <clears throat> of bullshit? And there was some incredible points where I, in, I could feel something happening within my body. And I'm a very visual person. So a visual would come up for me. So example, it might be a wounded child. And this little girl was like a part of me just hiding in the corner, just like banging her head off a wall nearly. And you would say, you know, I'm feeling like I can see this, like, you know, it's kind of like a little girl is in the corner. You know, that was just kind of you reflecting what you were feeling and energetically picking up on. And I was like, that's the exact same thing that I'm seeing. And so there was many times where I saw something or I felt something or, you know, I was like, I'm feeling a lot of pain in my heart. Like it's as if my heart is going to break apart. And you would say, how's your heart feeling? You know, I feel like there's lots of stuff coming from your heart right now. And there was so many different times where you really validated what it was that I was experiencing within my own body and within my own environment. And also with the visual aspect for me, I know not everyone is visual because my husband's obviously gone to see you as well. And, and his experience was different with, as well. But I know for me, I really loved, I feel like my parts, my, um, you know, the other parts within me, the wounded parts, I really felt like they really felt safe in, um, in that room with you. And I felt like it was nearly a cord. You created a cord through which we could communicate like 
in that better, more deeper way without shame, you know, in creating that container for us. And I really felt like I was able to integrate a lot more of these painful, wounding experiences um, because of that level of safety that I felt with you. Yeah, and, and that's lovely to hear. Um, because that that's exactly what we try to do. Um, I think what's also quite fascinating from my perspective was I was always amazed at how little um, rage and anger that you had, yeah. um, mm-hmm. particularly initially, like almost it was um, it was really fascinating to me because. I would be so curious, like, why are you not feeling angry about this? Um, or, and, and that, I think, came up over time quite a lot, that you, it was that anger and grief directed at yourself. And yeah. it, t- it took a long time to, um, to, for you to recognise, I think, that things that happened to you as a child are not your fault and it was a really instructive thing I learned a lot from you as a client in the fact of just how deep we can blame ourselves and we as a society are almost taught to victim blame um, and that we we actually embed that into ourselves and it's really hard to break free from and I think as well, perhaps harder for women as well to, to display anger. You know, there's really no, it, societally, it's quite hard to, for women to be angry and not just to be seen as hysterical. Yeah, definitely. And, and it was so true. Like, I remember that as, as we went on and, and yeah, I didn't have any anger. Like, it's as if I had all this anger that I would project out towards the kids and, you know, towards myself, such deep, deep, deep self-hatred, self-loathing. And I definitely felt that within our sessions, you know, and, and I verbalized that, you know, I was very verbal about how I felt about myself, you know, as, as time went on. And I just really did recognize recently how, you know, how unsafe it is for us as children when you're being abused or where you're being neglected or shamed as a child, it's very it's near impossible to then also project your anger at your parents. You know, it's, it's project. You mm-hmm. can't see them as being the cause of your anger because that's not going to help you to survive. It's not going to help you receive the love, connection, acceptance, belonging, safety, nurturing, food, shelter that you need. Mm-hmm. And so what am I to do in that situation? Well, I have to blame myself. It's not their fault that, Um, that they are choosing to abuse me it's my fault that um, I must be just so disgusting and so horrible that you know that I deserve it and so everything got flipped on on uh, back onto myself and I recognize you know recently that so much of my anger that I project out say onto my kids and what I recognize as being the depths of the anger that I felt towards my kids has been because my parents were able to project all of their own wounding and their pain and their suffering and their anger and their shame onto us helpless children. Mm. And because they couldn't, they couldn't project 
their anger onto the people who hurt them and created them to be the parents that they became. And so I was essentially just recreating that generational cycle. I would not allow myself to turn that lens onto those who actually deserved it. And, you know, say, this is your fault, mom and dad. You know, this is all of the people who abused me's fault. It is not my fault because that was never a safe way I learned on how to experience anger and blame. It was choose someone more helpless than you and shift mm-hmm. that blame onto them. And, and you know, that's, I think, one of the things that I most admire about you is that you have genuinely taken on the work to, of the intergenerational trauma and you're able to see it in that bigger picture light, which is, and I think you've been able to do that really very much from the start, that so I don't want my children to go through this. Um, and I need to stop this cycle. And I think that is just such a um, such a wonderful attribute and such a wonderful goal to have, you know, whereas we, we can get stuck in that anger cycle of just being really angry at, you know, the people who harmed us. But actually taking that and saying, I'm not going to pass this forward is such a big and courageous step. And the funny thing is, is, You know, when we say that, you know, I'm not going to pass this on forward, the worst thing is that you nearly have to get worse before you get better. You know, when I was working with you, my anger was ferocious, my rage, not not towards the people who actually deserved it, but projected onto the kids, my own helplessness, my own powerlessness. And, you know, I recognize that in those moments, I could have just said, this isn't working, you know, like this isn't, I'm better off just like taking some antidepressants or trying to do something that's going to just stuff it all down rather than work through it. I'm not saying that antidepressants don't have a space, not at all. But in that, in that moment, I, when I was really struggling, you know, I really was very conscious of, I want to break this generational cycle. And the only way I'm going to break it is if I keep on working through it in a conscious way um, and taking responsibility for my actions every single day and just vowing to be better every single day and working on myself every single day. But the problem was, there was lots of imperfection within that. There was lots of times too many to count that I was really felt like I was failing and that I really felt like I was projecting those generational cycles. But I really recognized that I can't break through these generational cycles until I feel them all, heal them and forgive myself. Because that's really where the issue came with my whole, you know, with my parents and with our generations. They just shamed themselves, which then ended up them shaming their kids. And, and it just that went that cycle. Mm-hmm. And so I had to break the cycle by, you know, by not shaming myself it wasn't about being perfect because I wasn't I was really really in so many ways um, not parenting the way that I would like to parent and you know not showing up the way that I wanted to show up but I just had that vision that I know that if I just keep on taking one step at a time I will one day get to the point where I can break these generational cycles and I will heal the wounds that I've created in this moment with my children and actually it's a good segue because my boys came to you as well Mm, yes yeah and it was um and they're both lovely boys um and it was really interesting actually I found because 
Um, there was, so there's definitely always a, that connection and that I would, would notice the, um, there were some patterns between um, you and, and particularly your eldest um, when you were feeling unsettled that, that there was a lot of mirroring going on between you both. Um, so that was really interesting to work with. Um, and I also, but I think the other thing that I found real, and I always find really fascinating with children, working with children is just the capacity for forgiveness and for looking at the best of us is so good. Like even even when we've had a misstep as a parent, I think sometimes we can beat ourselves up over it. But then if you talk to your kids, sometimes they won't even remember the incident. Um, or, but I think, and I think that's probably another thing that you were very good at, um, or at least I don't know if you were before I saw you, but became very good at is kind of really always holding yourself to account and making sure that you explained things um, to the kids no matter how young they were and I think that that's a really positive thing because I think quite often as parents particularly if we've grown up in a household where the parents are the parents and you know they make all the decisions we can tend to um, forget to present ourselves as people to children yeah we think that we have to be these all-knowing, all-seeing kind of godlike presences in their life, but actually we're people with needs. And, you know, sometimes mummy doesn't feel like reading because she's tired <laughs> and, yeah. and things like that. And so, and getting, and I think that's part of how we create empathy as well is that, you know, kids see you as a person who makes mistakes but is able to give, get up and try again and yeah. to try to thrive. So, um, so I definitely found um, there, there are some interesting patterns that you can feel in um, mothers and, well, even in fathers as well, actually, but in, in families, there's patterns that arise. Um, and I think I'm always intrigued, like I, and I don't have any data about this, but I'd be so intrigued to know, like if a child has a lot of craniosacral therapy when they're young, for example, do, can they shift some of those patterns without having to do that kind of conscious work you have to do as an adult? I'm so intrigued about that idea. I think I think if the if the parent has done the work on the generational, like on their kind of layers of of the generational wounding, you know, I feel like as long as you repair, as long as you're open and communicate with your child, and then like so, there was different elements for me of helping my children heal and process through the trauma of um, what they experienced with me. And, you know, even in utero, like, you know, there was, there was from, from the moment that both of them were conceived, I was severely traumatized. My energy, you know, I was very disassociated initially. Um, I was so disconnected from them. I, you know, I barely even felt, you know, I really felt very little connection to my kids, you know, mm -hmm. before I started healing before I started, um, my repressed memories came up. It was as if I was a stone. It was, it, it was, that was way more painful to me than the mm -hmm. rage. To be truly honest, when I look back on it, what brings me the most sadness is the years where I had Bobby. I had no conscious awareness of my trauma. And 
I wasn't there energetically. I wasn't um, connected to him. I couldn't let him into my heart or into my space because that was never something I had learned. I was so disassociated. But and you would think to yourself, why would he want to be around me if I'm so terrible? Like yeah. as your self-hatred would then go, well, how could you want me? Yeah, all subconscious though, you know, to, mm. uh, on, on a conscious lens, I was like, oh, I'm a great mom. You know, I feed them the right food. I don't let them watch TV. I was following all the principles of what everyone tells me that you're meant to do to be the perfect mom. But mm. I always knew, I always had this inkling that there was something missing, that there was just something not right. I knew it. I knew it in my heart and I knew it in my soul. And it was only when I started healing that I was like, oh, wow, like, I just, I didn't even know that they existed really. It was kind of like I wasn't, like you said, I wasn't even in the room with you. I was so disassociated from my body. You know, I wasn't really there. It was like, um, it was like a robot. I was, I was nearly a beautiful robot that was doing all the things that a, a person's meant to be doing, but there was no energetic connection, which I feel was a lot more, um, yeah, which caused me a lot more sadness then the part of me and the person who I became where I felt everything but I was able to then repair and show up with that conscious awareness and create that separation or create you know um that togetherness and that that um connection that wasn't there before but I think that there's a few things for me which is definitely holding responsibility and being accountable and repairing and doing the work to actually change because kids you know if you keep on saying to a kid that you're going to change you're trying going to try and be better and you don't actually do anything to change well you're just going to teach your kid that <laughs> that's that that people don't keep their promises you know whereas I was very much actively always trying to change. And that was always a, a big thing for me. You know, if I can just be better than I was yesterday. Mm. And then the other side of that was the craniosacral element, which was, I was like, I know that they've stored a lot of trauma in their bodies from the experiences that they've had with me. You know, I've seen Bobby sometimes, my eldest, I've seen him disassociate, like he'll stare into space sometimes when I would react. And so I could actually physically see him checking out of his body, you know, um, and I was kind of like, I, the only thing that I can do right now is repair and then, you know, eventually start putting in that work to say, bring them to you to create a sacral therapy to try and shift and move some of the stuck energy. And then on another um, side to that, it's allowing him then to release that safely in my presence as a healed um, parent who can hold space yes and and exactly that's how it pays forward because in actual fact when when you have craniosacral therapy and you experience that sense of someone being that that anchor that you can come back to and check in with um, that then allows you going forwards to be able to do that for others so your nervous, it's kind of like a pass the parcel of relaxation, I guess, or calm. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're able to sit outside of it. And, and it is interesting because on that note about dissociation, there are times when I will actually um, advise or at least not make sure that people feel like it is an option for them to dissociate when they're having a really 
emotionally overwhelming moment because dissociation can often help you to get space. It gives you that sense of I'm looking down at this situation and it can allow you to go, oh, what is my body doing now? Am I holding my breath? So if I give a good example, just say, just say you're about to go into a meeting um, with your um, with your boss and they're going, you know, you suddenly, you, you sense that it's going to be a bad meeting and they're going to tell you things that, you know, are mm. something wrong. You know, it's what you'll actually inadvertently do is you'll probably start holding your breath and you'll start to hold tension probably in your jaw, maybe in your hands and your upper body. You might contract your, your gluteal muscles, your bum, like you're sort of perching on the seat, like ready to run. And if you can give yourself, if, uh, with some people what I say is it's no bad thing to dissociate, Put, you know, find out where do I sit in this room? And often people will be in a corner of the room looking down. And then I say, and then just take that time to observe your body what's what's happening so that then you learn start to learn what's happening for you mm. and then learn that you can then go oh wow I'm not actually breathing that's interesting so then you can go maybe I should take a breath and it gives you that sense of space it's funny for me because disassociation for me acts in a different way like the way that I experience disassociation is I'll be talking to you here and um and then suddenly like it's as if all thoughts, you know, I've lost all thoughts. I've lost any capability to, it's not that I can't speak, I can speak, but it's as if you've taken all of the brains and all of the thoughts out of my mind. And I'm like a, a hot air balloon or a balloon that's floating up and up and up and up and up. And I'm above, like above my head. And it's kind of just like this um, expansion, expansion of energy, but I'm not necessarily looking at anything. It's just kind of complete fuzz, kind of complete um, inability to um, feel, focus, um, understand or have clarity or awareness. And in many cases, I love disassociation. Say if I'm in a therapy session with my psychologist and I start to disassociate, I love disassociation as because it always indicates something that is very uncomfortable for me and a topic that is very, um, very hard for me to deal with emotionally. Mm -hmm. And within that, I actually, it's very funny because I'll be talking to my psychologist about something and I'll be, you know, thinking that's not that much of a big deal. And then I'll start disassociation. I'm like, oh, no, this is a much bigger and much deeper than what I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And so it gives me an opportunity to check in more deeply with myself, to self-soothe, to talk to that inner child within me and be like, you know, wherever you believe that you are right now, you know, we're here in this moment. I'm, you know, 34 years old. I'm here with a very kind psychologist and she's very safe and she's not going to hurt you and I'm not going to hurt you. And so I create that self-talk until eventually that energy kind of, um, it's as if like it's a bomb, like it's all uh, the energies out there and it all filters down into my head and into my body again. And I can rethink and have the ability to answer a question again but before that when I'm disassociated I have no awareness of what's going on in my mind and no ability to view 
But the lovely part is from that, what you're describing, is you're describing perfectly what, I don't know if all the craniosacral therapists aim to teach this, but you're noticing it's always about the noticing. You notice that, like, because when someone's in um, dissociation all the time, they don't even know they're there because they're, they're so, they have so little awareness of their body, whereas what you're describing is fantastic and it makes me super happy to hear it because <laughs> what you're describing is I now am so aware of my body, I can tell when I'm starting to become dissociated and then I'm, uh, I'm, yes, I'm not able to speak and I'm not able to do those things, but I'm aware. So mm. if I, sometimes when I don't, when I'm at parties and I don't want to explain too much about craniosacral therapy, I just say I teach body awareness. <laughs> and that's exactly how you've described it because, and, and it is why sometimes, like I've had some clients in the past where um, I'll say to them, look, I think you should stop coming to me for a while and you probably should go and get a talking therapy. So go and see your psychologist because some of the things that are going on in your head are disrupting or stopping, blocking what's going to happen in your body. So it, it becomes, you can kind of feel it in the, in the session. It becomes a bit of a session of they feel like they're fighting a lot within themselves okay. and things to happen but it doesn't happen and their head's telling them for it to happen so explain that a little bit more because that's very intriguing and very interesting so can you give us an example of kind of what what's happening there when that happens or what what's well, going on yeah look I can only say that um if I just I'll bring up just one example in my mind so it was a woman I've been seeing and she was usually seeing a psychologist but her psychologist went away and she was having a lot of childhood trauma come up, right? And um, and it was how she was processing that mentally. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, so she was starting to talk about it a lot um, during sessions. And I was noticing that the sessions weren't moving forward. I felt like we had two sessions in a row where the same issues came up and they didn't start to resolve. So I actually said to her at that point I said I, I think I don't know what's happening I can't just I can't exactly explain it but I think when you've seen your psychologist then and you feel ready to then you should come back to me but I think that's maybe, so interesting yeah and and so what happened was she went and she had a couple of sessions with her psychologist and she processed some thing some of her childhood trauma um Hers was a lot about family patterns as well. So she was from a very, uh, uh, there'd been a lot of domestic violence in their family. And now she felt that she wasn't actually hitting her children, but she was being very verbally abusive and psychologically abusive at times. Um, and so it was really confronting that shame and that anger towards herself. And she needed to verbalise it, but I didn't feel I had the tools to be able to Mm. you know to really um kind of give her a home for that so then she went and had her sessions with her her psychologist and then she came back maybe a month a couple of months later and then things moved really quickly and yeah she, and so it was really fascinating to me so I guess um whilst I think that sometimes there's um talking therapies 
are not going to help certain situations. I think there's a blend always, or not always. There's some people that just do better with probably just um, just body-led therapies, which is what craniosacral therapy is. But there's um, usually, I think, there's a space for both. It's really interesting because there's many ways that I actually see that um, experience. Um, from my own experience, you know, one of the things that I see is, you know, if I was in session like that and I see the mind and the, um, the formulation of the, um, say, the traumas and the childhood trauma and the speaking of it, in many ways, it's nearly a way of keeping myself in my mind and distracting me from what's going on in my body. And so I would do that if I felt if, if well, not me consciously, but my subconscious would generally, it does it sometimes where if I'm not in a safe place to unravel the next layer of trauma, it won't allow it to happen. So when she didn't have her therapist there in order to soothe the mind, because remember now the mind, when the energy comes up of a trauma, the mind then reacts in a similar fashion to the depths of the energy. So sometimes when I do a very deep energetic work, what comes up then in, in alignment with that are suicidal thoughts, because mm -hmm. it's the depths of the energy of the trauma that's come up um, then has to nearly have a corresponding narrative and, um, and mm -hmm. thought pattern to go with that. And if you don't, if you are used to having a therapist to help you to move through these um, thought patterns, then you're not safe to unload and unravel the next layer of deep trauma. And so it's safer for you to be in your mind when you're not going to get deeper into those bodily traumas you know um, yes exactly actually a really good description of what happened for her because she was having uh, that particular client and it's probably you saying it has explained it a bit to me she she was getting quite um a lot of thoughts about self-harm um that was why I said I, I, we need to get your psychologist back on you need to go and see them because we need to unravel what's going on something's trying to come up in your body but it's being held back by your mind and that's exactly how it happened yeah exactly and then you know if you overload the body if there was one more say trauma that would come up that would be the tipping scale of the mm. mind to be like you know there's too much trauma here for me to process without assistance and so that's when I find the deepest trauma especially shame generally when I've worked through some very deep shame energy within my body the corresponding narrative um it's nearly like you know it's like my body and the energy in my body is the silent film and yep. then someone else is putting words to the silent film you know and it's like my the silent film that's running is an absolute horror story and so you have to put the correct narrative and the correct words to that horror story. But really, it's about allowing ourselves the space to feel that depth of pain and allow it through the body. But the mind is what stops it because it's, it doesn't feel safe or capable or that it's, it's, it's going to safely navigate that, that trauma through to the end and survive. And added to that, some people are more needing explanations um, others. So some people have more of a cognitive kind of um, 
need to 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 place things into um into their mind if that makes sense some people can be quite like body led and they they don't you know sometimes they'll say I I think a big trauma came up but I don't know what it is and it's really interesting the flavor with which they say it can be like I don't think I need to know it's gone now whereas others be much more or like I'm going to have to find out what this trauma was (laughs) and I can see their curiosity and it's not one isn't necessarily bad or good you know it's it's just different ways of processing things um different different levels of wanting to have answers and I think maybe it's more the visual people actually that really want to know the exact thing because just saying a nebulous I've had a trauma come up the visual people might want that kind of running film to be able to go is the trauma that came up whereas maybe people that are not very visual they don't need that kind of visual element to it so they don't need to understand it very much do you know what's quite interesting as you're talking Annie because what I'm recognizing is I believe that people who have repressed their trauma, that don't have any conscious awareness of their trauma, they feel like something's been robbed from them. I know in my experience, my husband's experience, my sister's experience, all of us have really had this need to understand, this need to seek validation, this need to really have all the answers because we don't have any of the answers. It's as if someone's taken our whole childhood and robbed it from us. And we have all of these feelings within our body and we don't have any cognitive awareness of what the heck happened. But it's my childhood. It's my right to know what happened to me. And it feels, it feels so wrong. It feels... It just feels so unfair that other people say for me, you know, other people have even friends um, that I knew um, as a child or a teenager, they actually have more awareness of who I was as a teenager or as a child than I have of my own childhood. I've spoken to some of them and the details that they can give me about my life, I couldn't even give them a, a, a fifth of those details and it makes me angry because it feels like something was robbed from Mm. me and so I feel like when you remember all of your trauma it's like I don't really need to know what specific one it was I know it's in a long stream but Mm. when you have no conscious awareness of your trauma and suddenly you do have awareness that there's something there that's not right you definitely have more of a, a need to understand but it's a very dangerous um it's something that has to be very much navigated carefully because you can go way down that rabbit hole and it actually creates way more pain and suffering within your life. So there has to be a balance with how much you need, seek to understand and how much you accept. Mm. Uh, do you, I'm just got a curious question here. If you, if you had come from a family that had a lot of photos and a lot of like little videos of you growing up, do you think that that could replace it? Like, I'm just curious. No, because, I, you know, I find that anything that I would have seen, any of even the images that I have from when I was a child or a teenager, they, they're like, um, you know, they're like the, the, the Instagram, the Instagram reel. 
you know that kind of way so nothing's mm. true it's all just a, a bigger um a bigger formulation of the lie that that was mm. our reality you know and so it is that disassociation and disconnection from reality that really affects us um people who don't have that awareness of what actually happened to them or are only kind of peeling back the layers of, of what may have happened or what the reality of mm. their childhood actually was. And do you think if if just one adult from your childhood came to you and said, look, this is what I know, and it confirmed a lot of your memories that have come up, do you think that would be enough? Like, what is it, what would be, does that, does that make sense? That's, like, Yeah, definitely. It's a really good question. And I'm just going to sit with it for a second because it definitely it definitely would give me a sigh of relief um, mm. and it would definitely it really would bring a lot more I've accepted a lot of it really but the problem with it with that is I feel like you know if that one person could come in and validate everything that had happened but yet my siblings and and my family didn't believe it still I feel like it kind of wouldn't really you know I've already accepted it to mm. to that degree it mm. I guess it just causes us a lot of pain that no one else will accept it or no one else will can you know accept that it's a possibility um but definitely there would be validation within it. Whereas before I would have thought that that would be only what I needed. I know now throughout my own healing journey that, you know, it's about what I accept within myself, what I know mm -hmm. to be true. And really that doesn't matter about what other people think, even if it is someone that's going to validate me, I feel like it won't really fix um, what's been taken from us. And that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of how it's impacted our family, which which really has brought us a lot of pain and sadness because there's some really beautiful people in our family, you know, and that's it, you know. Mm. But um, I did want to actually ask you something about the kids because I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of clients that say, you know, their biggest fear is that, that they've traumatized their kids beyond, mm. you know, recognition, that there's no coming back. And I'd really love to see your thoughts on, you know, obviously you saw the boys from mm. the beginning to maybe the endish. I'm not, well, they're still, we're still going through it, you know, and I'm sure there's still more, but I'd love to get your take on that. What would your response be to that? And could you give any kind of, um, any insight into how my boys were experiencing it energetically and how they kind of moved through that? Well, if, if so, you notice anything yeah so what I would say is definitely Bobby your elder son I think the that he um he and we, I don't I always couldn't work out whether it was just because he was older or whether there was a different kind of connection with you and him but he definitely was he, he seemed to have far more awareness I think of that was my perception because when his system was a much more changeable system, oh, sorry, when I talk about system, his body, his, his the way he came would be quite different at times and it seemed to correlate with what you were going through. Mm. Um, 
Whereas with Shay, I would say he's, he, and whether it was because he was younger or whether it was because he was shielded by an older child, I don't know, but he was much more steady, if that makes sense, in terms of how his body presented every time. Um, so that would be how I would say there. In terms of like um, if we do irreparable damage, do you know, I really think that my view nowadays is so long as there is restitution and so long as there is um, taking responsibility, then it's um, always repairable. Uh, that's my opinion now um and if I give us a really just a small example from my own life um when my so I have three kids and when my third child was born um my middle child was three and a half and he didn't cope very well with having a younger sibling he was quite nasty to him as a baby I couldn't leave him in the same room and things and and anyway, it wasn't, and I remember being really angry at him um, about it, and he was three and a half. And, and then when, when my, my third son got to three and a half, I turned around and looked at him and I thought, oh, my God, he's still just a little child. And so I actually spoke to my now seven-year-old child, um, the middle one, and I said, you know, Drew, I'm really sorry. I don't think I gave you enough love and attention when Timmy was born because I think I was struggling to cope with having three kids and I was just did I didn't realize how much how little and how much love you needed and it was really interesting because you know he was only seven and I just remember his eyes he just stared at me he didn't have any words and then it was really interesting because I just really felt a change in how we reacted to each other and how we responded to each other um and I look on that and I think that's actually the key is repairing but also having that insight. So, Definitely. So my point would probably be to say most people who are concerned about causing damage to their kids and are able to verbalise it or to at least confront it without shaming the other, the, the, the more helpless one, are actually probably not doing going to be doing long-term damage because they're actually they're in the room they're in as Brené Brown would say they're in the arena they're mm. whereas I think the the ones I the children I would have more concern about is the parent who says my child is just terrible you know yeah. because they're actually not looking within at all and they're not yeah. looking within and they're not open to looking within and so those are the those are the ones where I think oh this is going to be more of a problem long term yeah definitely and I completely agree like you know from my experience and I mean even from my own experience I'm a what 34 year old woman and you know I believe that I'm a testament to the depths of love for mm. a parent because I honestly believe that if my parents were capable of really seeking the help that they needed really dedicated themselves to healing um, their own trauma 
took responsibility, asked for forgiveness, showed that they were working on it. I wouldn't allow them back into my life initially, but I definitely have this desire. I would have this openness to possibly show them some love and some compassion because all I ever wanted was my mom and dad to love me. That's all mm. I ever wanted. Mm. And that doesn't change even though I'm 34 years old. Like obviously now I, you know, I would never let anyone treat me that way. And um, if someone doesn't take responsibility and doesn't do the work on themselves, then they have absolutely no space at my table. But I also know that we are a product of our own environment. Mm. And I just see that if I could possibly find space for healing after all of these years and after all of the pain and after all of the suffering and the trauma then you know I know that my kids can forgive me for being imperfect but trying yes like and I, I think that that's ultimately it I think that as long as we show them that we're willing to try like if I had a parent who had showed me that they cared enough about me that they wanted to change the way that they were treating me, I really feel like it would be a very different life I've lived. I feel like there would, I would have a very different um, vision of myself. So I, I know we have to go soon, but I do want to ask you just a few more questions and then we'll finish up, okay? Because I, I want to make sure that I get the rest of the questions in from, um, from one of the lovely ladies who had put some in. And sure. so she asks, you know, if you're going to look for a cranio, you know, how do you find a cranio and, you know, how do you find one that fits with you? Or is that even important? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. Um, and so what I would suggest is there's um, the body intelligence. Um, uh, that's the school that I went through. They have a list of practitioners in different areas. Um, so that's the, so then you can just look up who's close to you. Um, and then I, I would usually say, be prepared. It's a, probably a bit like most therapists. Be prepared to try someone with a view that you're just going to see how it goes. And then if you if they don't work for you, then I, like I'm always very um, when people ring me to chat, um, I, I'll sometimes work out where they live, and and then I say, look, maybe this particular therapist might be best for you. So sort of see if they're kind of open to the idea of not um, of being quite spacious about you know allowing you to try different people. Um, so that's what I think is a really good thing to do because that's a a good sign. And then recognize as well, craniosacral therapy is a a bit of an unusual therapy the first session I find people often don't really know what to expect so that kind of holds them back a bit particularly if they're a lot in their heads um so be prepared to think well I'm just going to give this a go and maybe a couple of times to see how what we um how I go with it but if you definitely aren't enjoying it or aren't enjoying the therapist then you know by all means try someone else so there's also the organization um, called PACT P-A-C-T um, that's the um, Pacific and Australia Australasian um, craniosacral therapy group um, they will have a list of members as well perfect and why and who should work with a craniosacral therapist you know who would you well, who and why 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. So many craniosacral therapists um, see people for purely physical ailments. You know, I have a sore neck, I have a sore, I get recurrent headaches, um, I have a sore shoulder, so things like that. And I definitely see people for that as well. The majority of the time, though, what I find is people start to recognise that they're they're feeling better overall so they'll come for other reasons or they'll actually that I definitely have people that come purely for trauma you know they'll recognize that they have trauma um and that with trauma clients I would be very um like I've had definitely had trauma trauma clients who I'm not necessarily the best practitioner for and I'm quite open in saying that you know sometimes they can be um and they might have a very, very delicate system or you know, there, there might just be something that doesn't gel and I will definitely recommend that they see someone else or maybe try other therapies first, you know, because there can be different things that um, respond. Because I think one of the things that I've really realised over time is I was a bit kind of evangelical about craniosacral therapy for quite some time, but now I realise it's probably just accessing energy and I think many clients could get that through other therapies as well. Um, and maybe in the hands of a different therapist, they might do something that's totally different but brings the same results. So I, that's I'm what very... I love about you, Annie. Like I just love that last statement. It's just perfect because I'm, <laughs> I'm just so in the same mindset. Like, you know, even if I work with people, I'm like, you know, I'm not, I might not be the right person for you. What I might do might actually not be the greatest thing for you. You might be good with someone else. You know, it's, it's yes. very much, you know, craniosacral therapy is amazing, but you know, it's still an energy therapy. There might be another one, you know, it's, we get then, so attached to, well, I go to this person and this is exactly the one that you need to go to, or this therapy is the only therapy. Therapy is so fluid healing is so fluid and so there's so many ways to heal you know exactly and you know there, there will be some people where just doing um yoga might end up being their pathway to healing they may never actually pay a, a therapist per se and they might just do it all via you know that so I think it's really important to recognize that everyone will have a different journey and I think what I tend to say to people and I know it's it probably sounds silly and it sounds a bit fake to do it but I actually say to people put aside a, create a different bank account and put aside money in that and then just try a number of different things and the reason I do that is because if you try and say I, I'm oh, you're really putting yourself first and that's a big step in the whole healing process is to be able to say I'm valuing myself and this is why I want to I am committing this amount of money to doing this um, because I am putting myself first so it's just it's more about that mindset of I am placing my my well-being at the top at the beginning oh yeah definitely and you know what I really feel like that's actually the catalyst for healing. It's it's the intention that you make. You know, so many of us say, oh, I want a different life. I want to feel better. I want to feel different. 
but yet you're not willing to put yourself first. You're not willing to use the money that you spend on getting the kids really nice clothes on taking care of your own health and your own well-being. I spent a fortune on healing during that period where I was at my lowest. I honestly didn't buy the boys clothes or shoes for about a year and a half. I didn't buy them anything really. Like I Mm. was, I was just so unapologetic because I was like, you know, I didn't buy myself anything. Every single cent that I had went Mm. into healing because I was like, as I said to Rob at the time, I was like, you know, it's either I arrive at the end of next year alive or I arrive dead. That's the difference between me actually getting help right now and me not getting help. And so I think we all can agree and the kids would agree if they were able to verbalize that right now, that having a mother that's here and mentally stable or even a joyful mother, if you're not suicidal, it's even just having a mother that can feel joy and to be connected with is so much more beneficial and fine and and important than having your kids have holidays or the nicest things it's uh, that's spot on and the other the other impediment is sometimes and I've had come across this with clients before some people are quite invested in their drama that comes from their trauma or that comes from so it's actually they may not they they make so they're often clients that come in and they say I just um I can't be like this anymore I've had all these dramas and then they they actually though don't realize that part of their identity is their drama yeah and so the they those particular clients can get really scared of cranio like they they have this real love hate they 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 say I want to like I'll do I'll have a session and they say they want to rebook and it's so funny because I always note them as a question mark on my on my bookings sheet because I think I don't know why but this person's not going to come back they're not ready for cranio yeah Um, and then sure enough they'll have something dramatic happens that means that they cannot make the appointment and then they'll try and rebook five different times and then they just won't come back and And, and so what I would say is, you know, for some clients, I would say, be honest with yourself. It, if part of your drama is part of what you find, think is interesting about yourself, you know, sit with that a little bit and just recognise that at this point in my life, I enjoy the drama of my life and it is a part of me and I don't necessarily want it to go away. That's really a big first step to recognise. And it's not even about the enjoying the drama. Drama In most cases, it's about the familiarity of the drama because when we are feeling that sense of, you know, oh, my life is, you know, horrendous and everything's catastrophic and everything goes wrong and this is crazy and that's crazy and you're living in that chaos, in many cases, as much as we don't want to feel that way and a part of us is like, I hate this, there's another part of us that's like, yeah, but this is something I know. Chaos is what I know. I feel safe to an extent within chaos. I feel safe to an extent within drama. There was always drama with my parents, you know. And so it's like, well, I feel safe and how to navigate the world when it's unsafe. You know, it's as if that's what feels familiar to me. But as you said, it's really about getting honest with yourself, about recognizing do I want to be this way? Because 
if we are having a life that is mirroring, you know, as you said, these patterns, like patterns of consistent things that are happening that are bad, we are looking for evidence of that within our lives. You know, we have a belief system that bad things happen to me. And so we are looking for evidence that bad things happen to us. That's familiar. But going to something like cranio, I know when my husband went to you, he had that first session and he talked the whole way through, he said. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's generally like that's that mind. Like as long as I stay in my mind, I don't need to feel what's going on in my body. And I noticed an energetic shift afterwards. Like he definitely was a bit more emotional and he didn't go back to you for quite a long time. It's a bit scary. Yeah, he went back again then and he had a really big emotional release and he hasn't gone back again. And I know that, you know, everyone has their own path and that's completely perfect. Mm. But um, but again, I know for him that that kind of embodiment, um, I don't know if he's really at that point where he really wants to be at that level of feeling and processing all that's in his body. And that's totally OK, too. Mm. And meeting people with where they're at. Exactly. But sometimes I will say, like I remember one particular client, um, I I was at the stage where I thought, oh, some really big things are gonna come up for her. If and and she was she had a lot going on in her life, you know, really young kids. And you know, I I was I actually thought to myself, I'm gonna have to tell her that I don't know that it's best if she keeps going yeah, just at this point. And it was really interesting because she came in and she said, look, I've really enjoyed this, but I don't think, it, I think it's going to go too deep and I don't want that stuff to come up. And I went, yeah. oh, wow, exactly what I was going to say to you. And so she's um, she's been interested in studying craniosacral therapy now, but it's really interesting that she was able to recognise that her character is she has some things from her from her past that she's put into a box and she does not want to open that box. And she may go yeah. through her not opening that box Um, and that's okay but it was good that she was able to recognize that that is that cranio was going to lift that lid and and she would feel out of control with that and it is a bit yeah I think think the thing that everyone needs to know listening this to this podcast is if you are meant to do cranio it will find you like you'll hear it on this podcast and you know what if you're really meant to do cranio then you'll see it come up somewhere in your sphere. Someone else will talk about it. Someone else will recommend it. You know, it will come to you. That's my firm belief that the right therapies will kind of come to us. They'll come up within our awareness on a consistent basis, maybe a few times. And we'll be like, okay, well, do you know what? I'm going to try that because obviously I feel like I'm getting this message. These breadcrumbs are being left and it's something that I need to try. Mm, that is exactly what happens and the other thing that I've just been thinking about with what you were saying is I think that other key thing that cranio does is because it helps you embody yourself it teaches you boundaries mm. and so boundaries that you have like when you've when you've had abuse when you're young and things you don't have boundaries because those boundaries were never allowed to form or if they were allowed to form they were trampled so deeply that you don't even know where they are so that's where you get the you know um people who end up with partners who are abusive as well or they um they can just have a lot of things happen you know and and so and actually 
uh, one of the things that I love about Pranio is it, it teaches boundaries. It teaches this is something that I do need to become involved in or this is something I don't need to become involved in and it allows you to have boundaries that are quite solid and quite not, I don't want to use the word visible, but they, they're, they're apparent to others. And yeah. so you just have situations where people understand your boundaries and you don't have to kind of, sometimes what can happen with people who don't have boundaries is they then just get really firm with their boundaries suddenly and they'll cut people off or they'll have very dramatic times, but it stops that. And I can't really 100% explain why, but it really does. Yeah, and that actually is a really good point. Um because you know I definitely found that when I was when you were saying that I had this visual that I remember having when I was working with you and it was a visual of my own boundaries and it was like you know if we if we look at boundaries as say an energetic force field around us you know that says this is my energetic space and that's your energetic space and I don't want you to step inside my energetic space unless I give you permission and I felt like for me if I had a bubble around me my boundaries it looked like it was like literally shot through bullet holes everywhere and it was like leaking energy like it was like some of my energy was leaking all around onto the kids and then they were leaking their energy into me and my husband was you know it was like we were all this cesspool of just boundary violation because no one knew where their edges were at and I really found craniosacral therapy to be very very um yeah helpful in you know firming up and giving me a bit more understanding about where my boundary limit is in that energetic sense mm, yeah and it's a really it comes up with a lot of clients that I I might find out about how they're going years later and they'll one particular client I remember he's he didn't tell his he's an adult he didn't tell his mum who was living overseas that he'd had craniosacral therapy or any fat therapy and when he she came back to Australia and and she said what's changed have you done something different and he said why and she said because you used to have a lot of friends that didn't treat you well and now I noticed that you don't let them or they're not in your lives anymore yeah. and I that was so fascinating because he and he hadn't recognized that it was only him telling me that someone else had recognized about him wow mm -hmm. is there anything that you'd like to finish on Annie because yeah it's been an amazing conversation I think we could talk for absolute ever yeah. <laughs> do you know I, I think anyone who's probably listening to this podcast is probably you know we give gold medals to people who can run fast but we don't give any gold medals for people who search deep inside themselves. And it's uh, on a societal level, I think that that is so sad because some of the most courageous and bravest and um, loveliest people I know are the ones who, you know, really take the time to, to understand and to know themselves and to understand their history and to not pass on hurts to to the next generation so I think it's amazing what you do and who oh, you are thank you so much thank you Annie and right back at you you're <laughs> like my little shining star pretty no. big shining star um <laughs> okay now I know that you don't take on that many clients but like would you like me to reference you know how people can reach you if they want to if they're in Australia and if they're in Perth 
or yes. are you um, too busy now because you were absolutely flat out with so much stuff <laughs> no no that's fine um and even if I can't see them I'm happy to um to help them find someone who might be able to um so I and I'm always happy to sort of chat to them or email um to find out what they might need um perfect and- help direct them because sometimes it's you know maybe they maybe just a really good book or podcast recommendation might be a really good pathway for them to start yeah amazing Mm. so can I give your email address below this would that be okay yeah sure yep do you know it I don't know oh it's just yeah yeah, it's just Anne with an e dot rainbow at hotmail.com Okay, perfect. So for anyone that wants to get in touch with Anne, you can get her through that email address and I'll reference it below. But thank you so much for chatting to me today, Anne. So one, take care and good luck. Thanks so much for tuning in today, guys. All the links to the information we discussed in this episode will be in the show notes, including timestamps where we change topics. So if you want to come back later and just listen to one section, you can. If you haven't done so already, please join our Facebook group, Let Me Be Free, The Wounded Inner Child, and post either anonymously or not what's going on for you in your world. We'd also be delighted if you would share this podcast or the Facebook group with one person who you think would benefit from the information. Be a law Have a beautiful day.